you, me, all of us are Talmidim of Ravaram. Now you think to yourselves, but I'm not, I never met him in my life. The answer is, if you learn in this yeshiva, and you're a Talmud of Rav Karrigan, and Rav Mordechai, or Rav Kay, or Rav Schreiber, or Rav Bick, or Rav Ryan, or anybody else, you're a Talmud of Rav Aaron. And so you have every right not just to know about him, but to feel close to him. And I'm very, very grateful to Rav Ryan and, and Rav Bick for agreeing to do this. And hopefully the memories they share and the insights they share will help you connect to the person who is all of our life. Um, shalom to you all. It's been six years since Ravaran passed away. There's been a lot written about it, and you hear about it through books and stories and all sorts of different things. But as uh, Mrs. Lukensee said today to me, Sheer Vav already didn't know him. Through the later years, itself was declining. The older Sheer also didn't, until he stopped coming to Sheer. In other words, after he stopped giving Sheer, he was coming in every day also, just as an institution to see him. And I think it's a, a, a tremendous chabab. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. That's what happens in, in life and death. Um, you weren't able to experience, Ellie said, which is a, a nice thing. You know, we're, we're all Talmudim because our rebeim were Talmudim. Not always the same. And you don't necessarily, you, I'm sure the different rebeim tell a lot of stories about Rav Aaron, about his greatness and things like that. What I want to do is I... Uh, I want to start with different shlavim. The earlier shlav that um, my connection with Rabbi Aaron was, I came to Yeshiva University, YU, as a freshman in 1966-67. I got from Yeshiva that was serious. I thought it was serious learning. Uh, my rebbeim were there. They were very knowledgeable and very great. But the whole thing was different. There, you... Uh, you learn the Gemara, you, whatever it is, you would go share, and the Rebbe would tell you different, what different Mephashim would say on something, never inside, it was just something, if you wanted, you wrote it down on the side or in a notebook, but it wasn't yours, it was given to you from somebody else. You come to YU, and I guess I was fortunate also to know people, uh, very often they had different shurim that were more, you know, more desired or less desired, and sometimes they would uh, attract people by saying, oh, you can go to a second year or a third year And it wasn't necessarily the best situation. I was fortunate, not fortunate, I was in the freshman year, and I had this person named Rabbi Lichtenstein. And Rabbi Lichtenstein was known for his, his greatness, but at the same time, again, I'll describe as a, as a scared freshman in college, some of the things that, that, you know, that took place. First thing he walks in, we let you know, everybody should buy a Shas and a Rambam. That's when the first four volume Shas was coming out. You get a Shas and a Rambam, and you use it. What would you use it for? We didn't realize that there's base measures for hours. He would give Mari Mikomos, my previous sheep had never did that, listen them down, you do them, you come. Machmin, and he always said, when you have sources, do the side sources. There's a Gemara that quotes another Gemara. From a different place, look that up too. Again, never fearfully, 
but because that's the way you learn. By learning different things from different places, your learning grows. He wanted us to buy the Rabbim Shas. I remember it cost $25 for both. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember not wanting to get it because that's expensive. <laughs> I remember Ravarin pointing out that you're in college, you'll take a chemistry course, and you'll have to buy the book written by the professor. And the book costs $35. You'll use it for one term or a second term if you're successful. And that's it. You'll never use it again. This shas you'll have forever. So I still have the shas of the Rambam. Um, I'm you know, figuring out financially. You know, it's cost maybe 50 cents a year for both. So it paid off. But I remember saying that, boy, that, that's really a good idea. It was a type of shas that was just new, so the binding broke right away. <laughs> like the ones they have, they have new and proof. But, but the situation was, that's what you got. You, you, got, you had this and you had that. And um, Ravah would give Mara Mekomos. He'd be mocked, as I said. And then he'd be in base matters, Kavrus learning. And then you'd have the, uh, the scared situation. You'd be in the shear. And it was an interactive shear. I think as time went on, it was less, but there was still. And he had everybody involved. And your heart is in your mouth, at least my heart was in my mouth, that I wouldn't be called on. Uh, there were times that I was. And there were times that my mind went blank, even though I knew the material. But I remember, I said, like, Rav Aaron is Mount Everest. He has such a high command of everything. And he had cotton. I, I, I remember the scared situation but it was an internalized situation. It wasn't because of him. That's an important thing that I'm going to point out now and a little bit later on, later years as well. He was intimidating, but I think it was self-intimidating. Because you look at him and you see how great he was, and you say, how can I relate, how can I this, how can I that? And it really, even then, wasn't that way. If you weren't prepared, or you didn't know it, he didn't browbeat you, he didn't anything. He might have gone to the other person, he might have asked you a little bit. In my case, he might have just given up and you know, stop calling on me, but the situation was, um, it was a situation that um, you were nervous, and you want to make sure you prepared for everything. And that was the situation, that was the feeling I had at the time. Not on a personal level. On a personal level, he was always available to talk. You had to get the courage to want to talk to him. He was available to talk about almost anything you wanted to talk about. It wasn't only Torah. First, you only see him through Torah eyes. That, that's the way you should see him. I mean, he lived, he lived through Torah eyes. He lived a Torah way, but his whole mahut was Torah. And you could see that. So then I didn't see it as much. I, mean, I saw it, but I, didn't, I couldn't necessarily relate to it. I know that um, he had the top reputation. His wife said that at the time, he wanted the younger Shiurim. She said, you know, the other Rashi Shibu, it's a similar type of thing of the students getting entranced by second year, third year, fourth year Shir. Sometimes that happens to the Rebbeim too. He wanted the younger ones because he felt, number one, they had the greatest potential and he could impact on them the most. She told me that today. And um, the great surprise that they had when Rav Aaron passed away was the outpouring. They were still shocked at the impact he had I want to say on Klal Yisrael, on the Gush, on American Torah, on all sorts of different things.
Memories I have there, okay, visual memories. He never walked. I don't think he raced, he didn't sprint. But he always walked quickly in a rush to get to somewhere with his Gemara and his Rambam, full volume. Um, and, and not only, but I think that he had many, like he'd have a pile of Gemaras and a pile of other Mepharshim, running to Shia, running here, running there, always busy. Not always business. I mean, he seemed like he was always business in Torah. But he wasn't always business in Torah. He was available. And that's an important, uh, an important factor. Um, we were amazed that he could give a shear, whatever he's doing, and somebody raises a question, somebody asks a question, something like that, and he would just, you know, reach out and pick up whatever safer he thought the answer was in, throw three pages, and he was on the duff. In other words, he knew he had the command that he could see. He had the command of everything he had. This is me watching. And I said, this is never going to be for me. I'll never be able to do something like that. But he could do it. It was a worthwhile thing just to see. And it was done very, very good, modestly. He did not go. He didn't tout everything he had. He learned. But he also communicated. Every Sunday there was a, uh, call it a hashkafa shir. What Sunday, though? Sunday. Every Sunday there was hashkafa shir. But he would pick a topic. It wasn't necessarily the question and answer that, that, that developed here, like the Q&A or whatever it is. At the time, he gave topics that he felt passionate about, and he spoke about it. And it made a difference. Things that he did and talked about stayed with me. He talked about the importance of people going into Chinuch. Talked about the importance of passing on that which you learn and live but you have to share it with others. I'm not going to use the, you know, hearing, hearing the, the crying baby. Uh, that was later on. But at the time, it was, hear the crying university students. <laughs> hear, the, hear all the various people you're hearing and do something with them. And dedicate your life, number one. Number two, strive for excellence. Whatever you're doing, if you can be doing more, you should be doing more. Don't be a slacker. Talked about that. He talked about making use of your time. And that impacted him. And I think that I, I went into Chinuch, it took me a while, but I went into Chinuch in great part because of his hashpa'ah. Just speaking about it. Again, not browbeating, not attacking. I know there were different people who went and spoke to about different things, and that was the same thing that they came with. Um, so though, that was then. The character development that he talked about. It wasn't only Chinuch. It was how to be a person. What kind of person? Honesty, integrity, ethics. He would deal with current events. He would deal with certain things. And dealing with it, he would express his opinion. Have a lot of sources. Had a lot of different things from all over. Whether it was his love for English literature and people from there. And people from history and around. All sorts of different people. And it made a big difference. It made a difference in my life at the time. Um, something that I remember again as well, uh, that, that was the year of the Six Day War, when I was in Ashir. And I didn't appreciate it then as much as I appreciated it later on, I'll get to that in a minute or two. Um, the Six Day War broke out. It's not like now that you know what's happening before it happens. Then, you didn't know. There was a blackout. There was a news blackout. The Arab stations were were talking about how Jerusalem was destroyed and uh, 
Haifa port was burning and all the different things. Uh, we didn't know. We came, I remember, I come to school one morning, I think it was, must have been the day it broke out, and Rav Aaron led something that sticks with me, but probably the most meaningful Tzfila day that I could remember. We had a shoe, we got together, and for about three hours, we said to Hillam, with him leading it. Now, to hear Rav Aaron Davin was inspiring. Just the way he did it, I'm not going you know, to mimic or anything like that, but it was an intense, heartfelt type of tefillah. And it was three hours. And I remember it. I remember at the time we weren't sure. The, the, the situation was dire. We thought everything was just a matter of time. I had relatives in Israel. I said, they're all finished, because that's what the press was saying. Miraculously, I don't have to describe the history, the euphoria. And I think that, in, in part, started him on his trajectory to think about moving to Israel. Well. It took a few years. But I think that was the impetus. I think he talked about it, about the, the difference about being, I guess, in the stands or on the 50-yard line in the football field. He said, you live there, you're in a 50-yard line of history. And he went. And why he was not happy? He had a life and a future. He was up, up and coming and already a star there. But he made that decision with the family. I think it was great personal sacrifice at the time, but it was inspiration. So he's going, New Rosh Kola, he was the Rosh Kola, he was the Rosh, the, 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 the Rebbe of the Shear. He went and he, how did he shoot? You think about that too. And he chose this uh, little yeshiva on the hill in the Trif. Okay? He was offered a number of different things. I'm not giving you the history they don't know about. But he chose to come here. And when you speak to him, I used to speak to him. Later on, I used to speak to him a lot more. Um, I got over my... Um, not my scaredness, but my not seeing what I should have seen all the years, even when I was younger, but to be explained. He said he was he picked here, I think because of his meeting with Rav Amitav. Uh, examples of the humility that he had, and that's a very important factor as well. Humility does mean you say you're nothing. You recognize your strengths, you recognize them as being from Hashem, and you utilize them to the best of your ability. That applies to everybody here too. People have strengths, utilize them, and work hard. And demand from yourself. And then you can demand from others as well. Whether it's chinuch or whatever it's going to be, you be involved in the community. He met Rabbi Mital. Rabbi Mital was ready to give him all the keys. The original letter of Mital apparently wrote, I heard this from Rabbi Mital, from Rabbi Mital's son. And Rabbi Mital's shiva, and I heard from Rabbi he, he was offered the position of being the uh, Rosh Shiva of Gush. So the, the son said, the, the, the Rav Amital's son, Rabbi Yol, asked Rav Amital, is it okay? Rav Aaron came. I guess he was impressed. He saw potential. And he agreed to come on one condition. And that condition was, once he found out that Rav Amital was a Rosh Shiva, when he first got the letter, he said he thought it was signed by Mr. Amital. He thought it was some pakit in the yeshiva and stuff. When he found out, he said, I'll only take it if Amital continues to be the Rosh Hashiva. talks about you, you, whatever. It's a, the situation was that they could be 40, 45 years together. And the only question he had is, who was more respectful to the other? Who gave more kavod to the other? They each brought different things there. Okay? 
He's looking to see Rav Aaron wasn't necessarily charismatic in the way he spoke. There are people who can speak beautifully, charismatically. Halavai alike. But it's not. But there are people who can really do that. He didn't do that. He spoke emes. He spoke passionately. And you could see the sincerity. You could see how much it meant to him. And therefore, it was very hard not to be moved by that. Okay? At the same time, again, he didn't lecture necessarily. But how do you think about it? Um, years later, so again, he, came, he went there to Israel. Family went. He chose Gush. There's stories about that too, but that's not the issue that's for right now. I made Aliyah. Also possibly, as if it took longer, I was doing some teaching in Chinuch, following Rav Lichten's suggestion, in America. And then the point came to, uh, you can do Chinuch in America all your life and still justify it. And I didn't want to necessarily do that. I wanted to see maybe I could do some Chinuch in Israel as well. Made Aliyah. Um, I was here, we were kept in touch. And then the opportunity came for him to, to, to ask if I would come and work and learn in the yeshiva. And for me, I decided I would give it a try because I'm coming back to my Rebbe. There was a different situation. No longer scared. The guys here were scared. The Talmud was scared. The Rabbi who had been this Talmud were nervous. I was less nervous. So I said, you know, I'm not going to wow him with my Torah, but I'll be able to utilize the things that he taught and ask him about on a personal level and a personal decision. And that's what I did when I came to the yeshiva. I was zocher to be close with Rav Aaron. For me, it was a schus. Nothing was off the table. He'd be available for all sorts of conversations, Torah conversations, personal conversations, life conversations. He was available for everybody. People didn't necessarily know or to take advantage of it because maybe they were scared. People told me, how can I go? I used to send Talmidim. After, I, after Aaron knew that I was bothering him, we introduced the Sichot Rosh Yeshiva. You know, when, when, when I came then, Rav Amital gave it one week and Rav Lippelson gave it the other week. And then there were some questions and answers. Rav, Rav Amital did it from 12.30 to 1. And he'd give something and then he'd answer about 8, 10, 12 questions. Rav Aaron would do it after Mincha for much longer. He would answer fewer questions because his... his his breadth and knowledge would be something. You'd ask him something for anywhere, and he'd go on and give all the sides and all the things. He had you think about all the different possibilities, and that, t- that took long. But it also caused people to think, you know, I can't ask him. He's busy. I have my, my questions. So I used to encourage them. I used to tell go and speak with Rav Aaron. Guy would leave as he, if you never spoke to Rav I'd say, say goodbye. He said, I didn't say hello. I said, so what? Go. That's what I said to him. He says, Rav Aaron can't do it. Rav Aaron would come. This is what I learned. The Hasmadim would point out two or three more things. I said that I wasn't going to speak that long, so I'm going to try to cut it down. Um, apologize. It's a little bit emotional, just in terms of the connection, just to see him. Just He'd walk in. He'd walk in in the morning. He'd sit down. One ten, he'd get up. Another lesson was something. If there were meetings, he'd get up. If people came to him in the basement, he was giving a share, he'd say, don't come now, come back. But he was always available to talk to people. If a person came to say goodbye, and he wasn't preparing a share, he'd have him sit down. He'd talk about his future. He'd talk about all different things that the guy would be interested in or want to know about. 
And Rav Lickenstein showed a tremendous interest, and guys were very grateful at the time that we pushed him to go. He was available. Learn. I learned how smother. Just the fact that you can just sit there and do it. He never went to lunch before 110. I think it was a statement. Okay? Zaman doesn't, I mean, the, 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 the morning Seder ends at 1, but it doesn't. You can come a little bit later and go there too. He'd come and eat as quickly as can. Remember, at different times, he'd come and some of the Rebbein were sitting there. We finished their meals quicker. Um, I guess they were still a little bit nervous. And I would see my eyes would light up. And maybe he would get a little nervous. Uh, <laughs> so I'd be able to s- just sit there and talk with him and ask him things and be available. It was just a wonderful experience. So the situation is, what, what memories what, what memories do I have and what, what did he do? So a few things. Just one, love of learning. Situation of hasmada. Be available to other people. Do it, the savior part of Show empathy. When you speak to him, he was really taken in by the things you were talking about. And he would give you whatever guidance he felt he would do. He wouldn't tell you what to do in most cases. He would give you the parameters and you had a chance to think about what situations apply to you. Then, years later, I used to watch him during tefillah. It was intense. It was like that intense 1967 when I didn't appreciate it. And here for a regular tefillah, it was heartfelt. It was really just something to watch on a regular basis. Watching him saying Tehillim for somebody. Watching him dance in a chasma with his full heart, the same full heart. Watching him dance in chastorah with just hit lahavut. He would have, the hakafas would go along and he would hold the Sefer Torah from beginning to end, even as he got older. Once he got older, toward the last years, I think they gave him the smaller Sefer Torah. But besides that, just to hit lahavut, the way he would do it, you, can, you see pictures sometimes, with him, his hand up and stuff, it was just an inspiring thing and it perpetuated the love that he felt and the love that we can have as well. His modesty was unbelievable. He said before, he knew what he was. He knew who he was. He took that and used it and encouraged other people to do that as well. Um, he was involved in so many things in Tzionut, so many things in terms of public, whatever there was, and he still had time to be in the base master all the time. When he couldn't, he didn't. But nobody knows. I, mean, I remember hearing I mean, how many people who come. His house was the hot spot in terms of people coming to collect stucca, for example. There were people who would come there and ask for guidance, and he was always available. Just important. Torah-driven. Ahavas Torah-driven. The ethical demands of life are important for everybody here. And we should be Zoha to at least have some sort of picture through this. exactly what I'm going to say. I'm going to stall for a few minutes while I think about it, too. And it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's Rabbi Weber's fault who only asked me this morning. <laughs> Ivan had a uh, 
he had a custom, he had a minic. Sometimes it was annoying where somebody spoke about personal stories that he knew about. Involved in. So then the first thing he would do when he got up is he would correct the stories. Right? And he had amazing, he really had a baby memory. I mean, it was one time, I think it was his 70th birthday, and they did a thing in Yeshiva and Raftavari Zatzal, who was the person who had the earliest memories of the Baron, because he remembered it from he he knew him as a little boy, a little bit. And, and so he told something about Ravaran, which he had heard from Ravaran's father when he was 11 years old. And then Ravaran said, no, it wasn't, it wasn't Mishnais, it was Tanakh. Right? And he had this custom. So I'm not correcting anything that Ravaran said, but something I just want to correct a misapprehension, because you might think that it was universal. It is true that Ravaran told every Talmud to have a, a Shas and a Rambam, which you can't learn without a Shas and a Rambam uh, you know, next to you, which, by the way, isn't only revolutionary to high school students, which we were when we entered this year. I mean, obviously, in high school, you know, they just do what the Rebbe says. But um, it, it's not true in yeshivas. Uh, any yeshiva, all, all, almost all Haredi yeshivas, and most any old yeshiva, they learn on a shtenda. You can't have a shas and a rambam. There's no, there's no room for it. The myth, which in this case apparently is true, in yeshiva, in this yeshiva, when they built the yeshiva, there was a machlokas between Rabbi Mital and Rabbi Lechenstein on the uh, furniture. Rabbi Mital wanted shtenders, like the yeshiva is supposed to look, and Rabbi Lechenstein said, we should have tables. And in the end, they made a pshara. They had both tables and shtenders. The truth is, they had like 50 tables and 7 shtenders. That was the pshara. The shtenders had disappeared a long time ago, but they were originally in the back of the base medrash. Uh, and the explanation of the machlokas was that Rabbi Mital, yeah, he, he lived with the Gemara. But it was like, so with the Gemara? There's no, there's no rule. My point is the following. He told everybody to do it, and it really was very cheap. It was $25 over 50 years. It's, uh, it's, it's 50 cents a year. And that's why Rabbi Ryan did it. I'm just cheaper than I did. I didn't do it. <laughs> to this day, I do not own a four-volume shas. The answer is simple. My Tavusa had a four-volume shas. There's no need for two. But okay, that's it. It's between us. It has nothing to do with it. <laughs> there is a point I want to make. I'm going to put it up a little bit just to explain uh, in a way to be parallel to Rabbi Ryan's uh, account from my own point of view. Rabbi Ryan gave a first year shir in Yeshiva, freshman shir, as they call it. And um, I stayed two years. I want to say two years. A lot of us stayed two years. It was the first time there was ever done. You didn't know why you kept moving up. But here, we didn't want to go anyplace else, so we arranged to stay two years in the same shear. Well, I entered the shear when I was in high school, because I went to MTA. And there was a program with you in, the, in your last year of high school, you could enter a college shear. So I was in a violent shear when I was a senior in high school, in my first year, my first year in college. Aside from that, I was young. So I met a when I was 15, which is when I entered the shear. It was a bit too young. Um, it wasn't just that it was different than, 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 than high school. It was the first time that, I mean, I had good rebellion in high school, but it was the first time that, it's not a criticism of anybody else, it was the first time you met somebody, we, I met somebody, who, like, he, he, he represented Torah, it was part of the Messiah of Torah going back to Moshe Rabbein. Now, why is that revolutionary? Because that, that, that's, not so, that's not so extraordinary. I'm speaking now in terms of 50 years ago. I don't know how it would be exactly today, but I think it's sort of similar. I, I knew people who could do that. 
But they were, in those days, in the, in the 60s, there were people with long beards who spoke Yiddish. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the Chiddush, you know, they, were, they belonged to the Besar because they looked like their Rebbe's had looked like their Rebbe's had looked. So I had a grandfather who was a big Tavah Chacham, or the Doha Yisrael. And I, I, you, know, you knew that there were people like that. And the question is, what does that really mean for you when you meet it? Because we, we weren't, we were Americans. I was more American than Rabbi Ryan. Rabbi Ryan went to a real yeshiva high school. Uh, which he explained, I had a lot of, to my chacham, to to I went to MTA, it was different. <laughs> <laughs> I can see this in MTA. But Ivan was just a regular guy. Didn't have a beard. Spoke English. We played basketball with him. <laughs> I can't count how many basketball games I played with Ivan. Uh, and uh, I can't even count how many times he elbowed me in the basketball game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's an important point. I'll explain later why it's an important point. Uh, I had a, it was a, a thought, I'll tell you now. I had, we had a machlokas. We played ball with him. Three on three, who would, ta- who would take him? Who would, who, would, who would defend against him? The other boys I was with, we used to refuse because it was, it was kind of us, so you, can, you couldn't have him close enough. <laughs> I tied it, see what a big Tamil Chachma I was at the age of 15, that if a man plays basketball with you and elbows you illegally, then he's mocha that you can elbow him back. Therefore, I used to volunteer to take him. But we, we exchanged blows more than once. <laughs> I didn't give him as much as he gave me, but Chosset would have caught a time, but yeah, I thought it was better. And, and I think that, that, that was an amazing experience for a 15-year-old. That I met somebody who, without any of the external uh, factors, no beard, that, that's, I don't know, if it's, I think it's probably still true, but, you know, no beard is a, it's an amazing thing. He was just, he was just a, a guy. He, had, he wasn't old enough to go beard yet. Uh, and, and he spoke English, which none of the other women in, in the yeshiva probably could. Spoke English without an accent. Wasn't going to speak English at all. The shiurma was, was, the shiurma was still in Yiddish. We came, all, all the shiurma in Yiddish. Well, one or two, one or two. Who didn't give shiurma in Yiddish? The rabbi base started giving it in English, it's true. Ivan Salvechik gave shiurma in English also. And at the Baron Salavechik's Levaya, and that's Levaya, the husband in Yeshiva, the Levaya was in Israel, but the husband in Yeshiva. So Luchasin said the following. He, he met Levayan when he was in high school. Levayan was a Ram uh, in Chaim Berlin. And that's where Luchasin met Levayan Salavechik. And then he met the Rav later on. So he said the following. I'm going to record it I, as well as I remember all the words. He said, when he met the Rav later on, it was amazing, but he never thought he would be like the Rav. When he met Rav Aaron, he thought, and then he immediately added, by mistake, it was a ta'ut, but he thought when he it met Rav Aaron... It was vainglorious. What? It was vainglorious. I don't remember the word vainglorious. Maybe I didn't know what it meant. He said, uh, he thought in mistakenly that he could be like Rav Aaron. Later on, he realized that, that, that it wasn't true. Uh, different reasons, I don't think it's right, I think it was true, but it was, but, you know, he, he thought it wasn't true. So I'm going to say the same thing now. In other words, I, I spent six years learning about Rav. And uh, it, uh, it definitely formed a lot of my understanding of Yiddish guy, definitely completely formed the way, the way I learned. Um, but I never imagined I could be like Rav. When we met Rav Aaron, so we thought mistakenly, what was that word? Vaingloriously, I thought I could be like a Ravon. Uh, there was a point where, when I was at that age, I was still in a Ravon Shir, 50, uh, 60, 60 years ago, 55 years ago, my mother accused me, apparently correctly, 
of literally imitating Avraham, talking in the cadence of his voice, <laughs> which I stopped doing, but, but apparently she was right, and the reason was because I really wanted to be like Avraham, which would not have happened if, uh, if a person on the same level of godless, but in the old style, and the diff- you know, coming from a different world, you would not have identified. So that, that, that was really an important factor in terms of us as Talmudim, as Talmudim then. And I have a story to tell, which I know Rabbi Ryan wants me to tell, so I'll tell it. And first year I was in this year, again, it's important to realize I was 15 years old. It's very, and, and things make an impression on you then, which maybe wouldn't make an impression if I had been 33. And the Nitziv, and you don't have to put your masks on, that's an innocent cough, it's not, it's not a good one. My pocket coughs again. Almost twice, maybe it's important. It's my wife. When it says about Yitzhak and Rivka, when Rivka met Yitzhak, she fell off the camel. It says, So Rashi says that Tipo means that she. Descended. Not that she fell. Well, why would she fall off a gamal? She knew how to ride a gamal. She was experienced. But the pole also means Yoda. But the Nitzvah explains it the way we think it means, that the pole means she fell off. And there was this whole thing there that um, she also was very young. And she met Yisrael when he was coming back from Be'er L'chai Ro'i. He had gone there for his bodedot. He was Shtekel Betzlava. He had been uh, talking to Kaddish Baruch when he came back. And he, she saw him, Matuf Be'ananei HaKavod. And she was just overwhelmed by his kedusha, and that's why she just fell off the camel. And therefore, for the rest of her life, she was unable to approach Yitzchak as, you know, as an equal, as, uh, I, as you know, to tell him in his face what had, what had to be told. Not that she was so afraid of him that she wouldn't manipulate him behind his back, like she did with, with Yaakov. But she could have just gone to Yitzhak and said, Yaakov's a tzaddik and Esau's a bum. She couldn't do that. Because of this, that, that was their relationship. Uh, and his point was that your first meeting really affects you. So that, that is true. It's interesting that Rabbi Ryan said that when he came back to Israel, he just used to go talk to Avruch and say he wasn't afraid of him anymore. At, um, some, uh, I think at, when Avraham died, before the Leviathan, I think it was, I was in the house, and the Rebetzin Tova said to me, I had actually gone to the house when his body was still in the house. And she said to me that she remembers that when her father, the Rav, died, and I gave a short, not really a hesper, I gave a little introduction to the Mishnahis in Yeshiva, and I had said then that only after the Rav died did I realize that I loved the Rav. That when the Rav died, it had been 15 years since I had spoken to him or seen him. And I have to admit the truth, I didn't think about the Rav during those 15 years. Occasionally I would ask about what, you know, how he felt, whatever he was doing, but I wasn't, it wasn't in my head. And, uh, but when the Rav died, I, I cried. And I realized that I had loved the Rav, but I didn't realize B'chayi because we were so afraid of him. And, and, but, you know, but now, I, I, I always knew that I loved Lichtenstein. So a few years later, she said to me, you know, although, oh, no, excuse me, then at the moment she said to me, oh, you know, you said... You said about my father that, you know, you feared him, but I know that you really loved my, uh, that, that, that you loved my, my, my husband. She replied that I didn't fear him. So I told her the truth. To that day, before I spoke to Avara, and I would go, 
Okay, I have to get ready. I have to say what I'm going to say. I did not go over maybe the last two years, but surely not for the years before that. I think one of the reasons is because I was 15 and he was 18 when we met the Rav, and it made, it, made it, it, made it, it made a difference. I was always, the awe always, always remained. But I want to talk about the point that, 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 that Rabbi Vine made. It was a very different kind of awe than you might expect. I met the Rav. The Rav was also, he wasn't at his height of his awness at the time. He had uh, mellow, they say. The stories about the Rav from the 50s were that people didn't eat before Shir because their stomachs would get upset. And uh, I met the Rav. We used to eat. But I never spoke to the Rav. It took me six months to speak to the Rav. Uh, it's also a story about a vow. After six months in the Russia, we used to hang out after the show, and you know, people would ask some questions. I would go to listen. One time I had a, I had a really good question. And I, I, it took me six months. I said, okay, I'm going to ask this question. I, would, I asked the question, and I, must have, I probably didn't speak clearly. In any event, the didn't always hear clearly because he was so moving so fast. He said, what, 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 what did you say? And Ravon was there, and he said, what Ezra wanted to ask, I'm pretty sure he made the question much better. What Ezra wanted to ask was the following. So that's also a story about Ravon. He was a very nice man. And two, <laughs> you, you couldn't talk to the Rav. It really was, it really was amazing. But the truth is, I couldn't talk to the Rav either. I used to very much more, but very carefully, for years, I'm saying for 40 years afterwards. But what did you all come from? The often the Rav came because the Rav was, was literally a volcano. His eyes burned through you. When the Rav looked at, when the Rav looked at you, you melted. Rav, as I said, he didn't have a beard. His eyes didn't burn. He didn't, he didn't turn to you when you asked the question. He thought it was a stupid question. He turned to you and say, what, what, what did you say? That's ridiculous. No, he would say, interesting, let's spare. Well, it could be different. He's a nice man. There's no reason to be a So why were we all in awe of the Rav? You remember Rav was in awe of the Rav uh, for the first 20 years at least. 20, 30. Um, it definitely wasn't because of externals. And it was a different kind of, even an internal, it wasn't a burning fire, it was, it was, it was just the Midas. And now I get to the real point, which is, why was he so important? I, I truth was, I was amazed at the Leviah. How many people came to the Leviah? Thousands. Ten thousand people came to the Leviah. Now, okay, I've known about for a long time. To be close to Leviah in, in, not what you think in your heart, but what, to be close to Leviah it wasn't that popular. You know, basically, the I'm done him, or you know, had something to talk to him about. But even in Shia, at those days, we had a Shia of 35 people. I don't know if the majority of the Shia afterwards considered themselves to be Tommy and Ramadan. Because you had to get into, you know, the kind of learning, etc. So I was amazed that 10,000 people showed up. And a lot of them were not Lamdanim, and they didn't make, many of them didn't even learn in Yeshiva. Many, <coughs> many of those people did not learn in Yeshiva. In a personal thing, my own family, okay, we lived in our lunch food, so he didn't want to go so that's how we We lived in our lunch food. Ah, I was close enough to have to invite him to their bar mitzvahs, okay? But, uh, and they saw him on Shabbos. Uh, every one of my children came to the Leviah. One learned in Yeshiva. One did not learn Yeshiva. And the three girls came. None of them learned in Yeshiva. <laughs> and I would say that, as far as I remember, none of them ever spoke to him. He probably did, because he, he used to go over there to talk to them, but they weren't telling me the Leviah. They all ran to come to the bar. Came, they came from far away. They all came. And I asked myself that. I was very happy. He said, why? Why are they coming? Why was Avaran a leader? He was a leader for so many people. And it wasn't because of the Chidushim and the Torah here, or the Chidushim there. It was because of the example. And this is the thing where the awe comes from. He was an amazing example of how we should live. For years, I used to think, 
when I did the Pasuk, once a year you read the Pasuk, Ruach HaPeinu Mashiach Hashem Nalkat B'Shchitotam Asher Amarnu B'Tzilom Nechia B'Goyim And I used to think about it when I read that Pasuk. And because of the end, Asher Amarnu B'Tzilom Nechia B'Goyim He was an example, an extreme example, of how we can live normally. The word normaliyot in Hebrew is a sisma in Shivat HaRetzion. Because Amital talked about it a lot. Amital used to talk about it, all kinds of dolim, but they're all crazy dolim. But uh, normally, to be just to be a, to learn all the time, to be inside, to be normally, to be normal. So Amalek wasn't normal the way that Amital meant it. But he was normal in a different sense. Amalek was normal in an abnormal manner, and with, with vengeance, with, with conviction. Everything he did, which was more or less resembled the normal American life, other than the fact that he learned all day long. But, 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 but he also played basketball. And, and, and he... I can tell... Uh, I have to pull up other people. There's a... Rav Tavori said some story that he told about it. Lechenstein. Rav Tavori had a funny sense of humor. Uh, somebody once came to visit Yeshiva with a little kid, a ten-year-old, who was speaking to Rav Tavori. And then Rav Tavori said, to me, see that man over there? He put it to Rav He said to this ten-year-old kid, he, he, he knows the MVP, the American League, and the National League going back 50 years, my heart. So the kid said, ah, nah, I can't be. He said, go ask him. So he never appeared. So the kid wasn't afraid. So the kid went up and said to him, who was the American League MVP in 1943? Uh, Ellie, what's the answer? Everybody, what's the answer? Oh, what? Somebody knows the answer? Oh, you're just like a Yes! I'm the spot. I'm the spot. David the answer. But he was normal with a vengeance. In other words, everything was because he thought it was the right thing. You know, he told us how we could be modern or normal or balanced, but the fact is, we have to admit the truth. Most of what goes as modern Orthodox Jewry is a valiant attempt to balance. We talk pshara. In other words, we want also to play basketball. We want also to read the New York Times. We want also to go to the theater. We want also to go to the movies. We also want to be good with God. And so you work it out, and then uh, okay, you a little bit of this, a little bit of that with a big feeling in your heart, I hope, if you're serious, that you know, you're not really learning enough because you go too often to the movies and, and maybe you're not being educated enough because you don't uh, read enough books. But we think, I mean, maybe even there's not enough to mean. It could be it would be the same percentages, although usually it isn't. But it was all because he was committed to it, not because he was doing the show. And that was something which I think for most, that's what in the end, for those who just met him, very often didn't learn they just met him and saw it, or they read a little bit, became uh, the reason why, why he was the leader, why he, he became a leader. I, it always amazed me he became a leader, because I came on Aliyah a few years after he did, and the yeshiva, he was the leader of the yeshiva, that was Bo, he was Rosh Yeshiva. And years later, he discovered that he was flying back to America every year, because they, they was also saying something about the American rabbit, but nonetheless, they needed him there to, to not to answer Shailas Lahalacha, but to answer Shailas Lahalacha, how to live. Was the, he, used to, he used to go to every RCA convention. They invited him, they paid for him to come, he said, to a ticket, because they needed someone who would exemplify and explain, or so he should talk, he would explain, but also just by being there, he would exemplify what modern Orthodox American Judaism should be. They didn't feel they could rely on, 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 on other examples. I think that's what really, I think, I think at 15 I sensed it. Well, it doesn't make sense, but I think, you know, it was, it was I didn't want to be 
That's Puma Drew when I was 15. I graduated high school. He, he changed me very, very quickly. But very, very quickly, I, 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 yes, I wanted to be just like that. At the time, I thought I would succeed 100%. But I wanted to be just like that because it was, it was how to be a Jew in the modern world. B'tzilo, nichyeh, the expression, Pasuk is bagoyim, in this world, I'm, I'm retranslating it. And by, by being an example. And how did I get to be a Talmud of Luchansin Vyali? That's another area as well. Vine talked about his loveness. And it's interesting. It's true. You could ask him a question, and he would, you know, take out the Gemara and say, you know, there's a Gemara, there's a Gemara, there's a Gemara. He really knew, he really knew everything. Um, he had an annoying habit about it too. I once asked him a Shaiva. I thought it was a good Shaiva. And he said, oh, you know, it's the Tosas and office. If he said it's Tosim Baba Khan, I wouldn't have known what he meant. But he says, it's a Tosim Menachas. That's all he said. And I never figured out if he was doing it on purpose or not. I, to this day, I don't know if he's doing it to tell me that, you know, you really should know what I'm talking about. Or whether he would thought, you know, Tosim Menachas, everybody knows. Once, I, once he says it, I'll figure it out. So, <laughs> a few years earlier, I would have said, there were times so where I used to go, uh-huh. Then I would go back, I'd go to Rav and say, what did he mean, Tosim Menachas? And we'd work it out. This particular case that I remember, I was already getting a little bit better. So I said to him, uh-huh, which Tosas and Menachas? And then he opened it up, he showed me Tosas and Menachas, and okay, it was indeed, it indeed was relevant. But the truth was, at the time, when I was 15, I wasn't that, I wasn't that awed by that. So I thought, ultimately, Chacham, you I think Rabbi Ryan went to the yeshiva in high school, there were a lot of big Tamil Chachamim, and they didn't know Shashbarat. But I, again, I learned in MTA. I didn't, such big, I didn't think there was such big Tamil Chachamim. A real Tamil Chachamim, given the Shir and Yeshiva Kvot, of course you know Shasta. That didn't impress me then. So that wasn't really what, what, what would bold me over. I think what bold me over. Totally different area altogether. 1965, when I, yeah, that's when I entered the Shir in 1965, before, before the Six Day War. And after the Six Day War, Russian Jewry exploded. I mean, it, it, the Six-Day War affected Jews in Russia. Before the Six-Day War, it was one or two individuals who were um, trying to find their way uh, to Judaism within, within Russia, within the amazing oppression and, and, and darkness that was, that was Russian Jewry. Elie Wiesel went to Russia on a visit in 1965, and he looked for Jews. He wrote a book called The Jews of Silence. Uh, it's Eli Wiesel-ish, so we're not sure if the stories are true or not. He always insists that all the stories are true, and not everybody believes it. He has a lot of good stories. And an excerpt from the book, before it was published, the book came out a little bit later, but before it was published, an excerpt appeared in a magazine called Life, which was an American magazine, that big glassy magazine, big pictures, about things. It's very popular. There were two magazines, Life and Look. An excerpt came out from Life, and it describes a story and that he was in some smaller town someplace, not in Moscow, and there was one old Jew there who had a sukkah. An old man with a beard, and a couple of Jews came with them, and Eli was always there, and the Jew gave a little drasha at the sukkah, they ate a little bit, and he said, you know, this is the end of Judaism, this is the last sukkah that anyone's ever going to see, because after us it's all, it's all gone. That, that was, that's what I remember from the story. He came into Shia, and Avluchetstein said, after he gave Shia half the time, an hour, like two hours, he said, no, he wants, he wants to read this to us. Now, you understand that he's reading it to us because he read it previously. If you know of Lechensin, you know he read it twice previously to make sure that he could get everything point. And he got it and he started reading it. And in the middle, he choked up and could not continue. When he got to more or less the point I just described about 
the man describing how the bridge guy is over. And we sat there for a few minutes, and like, it wasn't going anywhere. We just got up and walked out. And to the best of my memory, I don't think I'm making this up, that's when I became a Talmud of was The learning was really important. There's no question about it. It changed my life. I learned that you have to learn, that you have to be dedicated to it. You, you, you can make Torah into the center of your life, not just an interesting thing you do between one course and another. But the personal aspect of it was these, I think, really unique, truly unique, I've known a lot of Torah, truly unique connection between uh, normal godless Torah to a very high degree and the incredible moral and personal sensitivity, because it's a combination of both. There's moral sensitivity to what's right and what's wrong, and but the personal sensitivity to cry over something that he had already read. In other words, he wasn't being overwhelmed. He was being overwhelmed, but he was overwhelmed again because it was just as sad the third time as it was the first time, and therefore he could do it again. In a somewhat more exaggerated version of the same thing, he once said to us, I think it was that year, I don't know how it came up, it was before Yom Kippur, uh, you know, he, he came up with this line, he said, he's jealous of us because we can read, he happened to have liked the book Paradise Lost. So I think it was Yom Kippur, because it's connected, uh, by Milton. John, he loved John Milton. He said, he's very jealous of us because we can read uh, John Milton, we can read Paradise Lost for the first or second time. When, when you've read it 17 times, it, it, it's less, less influential. <laughs> realize the man was only 34 at the time. He, he apparently read it once a year before Yom Kippur. Uh, that, that, that's when I realized that. And the truth is, he said it was less emotional to read the 17th time, but it's the first, fifth, or sixth time he was still, still being overwhelmed by the sensitivity to what was going around. And that leads to another point, which I think also affected, affects many, many of the Talmidim and the pseudo-Talmidim. Talmidim who weren't Talmidim in Shia, but, but feel that he led them, as I mentioned. I think one of the reasons my son says they finish it. My children later on told me they came to the to the to the Levaya. about the girls, not about the boys. Came to the because he was, he was the Rav of the family. Now, Rav of the family, he didn't pass Mashiach to my family. I can think of three or four times I asked him, Mashiach Allah, and then I wanted to hear what he had to say. I wasn't that type. Uh, I passed Mashiach to my family, or I looked it up. Um, but he was, he, they meant, and I'm saying, these are girls. He was, he was the leader. He was, he was the Lord. And it just was like, it wasn't because of anything specific. It was like automatic. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons is, I just thought of this recently, because I do. I don't know if other people do. I may, I may be transferring. How many times in my life do I say to myself, what would Rav Amin have done in this situation? What would he have said about this? People ask me questions. If I answer quickly, I answer what I think. If I have time, I know what I'm doing. I say to myself, what would Rav Amin's article on this topic look like? And then I try closer to appropriate to change it because what I really believe. And it's even more true, not so much in, in ideas, as simply in actions. And Ravana is a much more ethical person than I am. But as ethical as I am, in many of the cases is I stop myself at the last second and say, you know, he, he wouldn't he, he would have done it differently. It's ethical sensitivity, but he it was I can't even explain it. It's it's a tumut that was appropriate for all kinds of reasons, because he didn't have a beard, because he was close to us, and because he was great, that if the best thing I could do would be to do the same thing he did. And that, that carries for the, 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 the 40 years in the Shiva Tarot 
So I, people, I don't remember the stories. I don't have that many stories. And, and maybe there weren't that many stories. You like, you know, you give a hesper to somebody. So Gedol, you give a hesper to by telling stories that did miracles. Or you can give amazing godless stories. Godless stories are totally, you know, when he was six years old, I asked him a kasha and he, and he answered, a, uh, he answered the Rav Kibay Gashat, I don't know, I don't know any stories like that about Avada. There probably are, but I don't know any. And the, the godless here is different. The, I'm not, not going to quote something he said in Beis Medrash, but I think everybody in the Beis Medrash, some of you seeped in this leadership, it molded it molded what it what it meant to have learned here even for even for a couple of days. It molded that you you now would live your life in a certain kind of Yiddishkeit, which is not a balance between not what we think modern orthodoxy is a balance between A, B, and C, but avodas Hashem, total avodas Hashem, but with a certain gisha that says you have to be over Hashem this way and this way and this way. Put it all together and balance it. One that communists is limits between playing a little bit of basketball and learning a little bit of Torah too. Playing the right amount of basketball because well, I had a whole theory why it's important to play basketball. You should know this. Uh, the, what, this is important and this is important. There might be enough kamina. How many minutes? And maybe there's no enough kamina. I don't know what Ravan's answer is to how many stubborn, excuse, excuse me for the word, of basketball you need a week. Uh, in my head, I think my own personal minute when I was in Israel was once a week. But when I was a Talmud in the Rav Shir, we played every day after Shir. So it could be that you could have three, uh, three stubs or five stubs a week. I hope not, but it could be. Maybe he would agree. But he would only agree because it was right. Because it was, it was the proper balance to make a better Oved Hashem. In the end, everything was about Hashem. There weren't any stum moments. And without him, he probably said that. Without him saying it, we all knew it. And that was the tremendous influence I think it had on the the cloud over the years and years and years and years and well, but I had more years than most people I, I, except for three years between his Aliyah and my four years between his Aliyah and my Aliyah so it's been 50 years seeing him almost every day but, but I don't think that's really the fact I think that if I that I, I know a boy who lived in Yeshiva for one month he came here before he went to the army he had, he had, a, he had one month he came here to the army he considered himself to be one of Talmud the Yeshiva two of Talmud the Yeshiva he wasn't in Rav Amadji of course he was, he was a kid uh, but he, later on, he made sure to, to, to self-identify in, in, in that way. And that, I think, uh, Rabbi Weber said in the beginning that uh, you are Tamino Rabban because you're Tamino of Tamino of Tamino of which is true, but by that, but by that argument, you are Tamino of So, you know, Chavtebis, okay, we missed it, but therefore on Chavtebis, which is the Rabban's yard site, we should uh, talk about the Rabban. Uh, you also are Tamino of Moshe Rabbeinu, Zion Adush, talk about Moshe Rabbeinu, maybe we should. It's a good argument, but there's something more going on. There's something more going on. It isn't only that, you know, what Moshe Kibbutz told me, seen in Israel, Yeshua, and without any link that's missing will, will, will affect us all. And, and it's not just the rough story about when you're learning and some of the comes into the room and, 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 and the Ram and the Rabbit come into the room. There is, I think, I don't know how much it will affect you because the whole thing years are going by. But there's a certain attitude towards living Yiddishkeit in the modern world that is on one hand doesn't take anything for granted. You have to criticize and you have to evaluate everything. But on the other hand is a positive way of, of finding all the positive things, utilizing them, fulfilling them, 
Sometimes people used to be amazed because people you know, assume, okay, the man is a modern Orthodox Jew. And then they've discovered that he wasn't a modern Orthodox Jew. People were, were not that way. They, I remember an article once appeared in an Israeli newspaper that said, you know, someone who's a, he's still vice, he's an important person. He must have talked to Ivan about something. He came back and he wrote an article saying, who you did, how he did. He said, very disappointed me because he's head of a Zionist yeshiva. Uh, and in some ways it's true. But what disappointed him was that he was a modern Orthodox Jew. He wanted, he wanted, he went to Ivan, he wanted a justification for everything he was doing. Because everything is mutter if you're a modern Orthodox Jew, as long as it's not doing the Torah that's also. But Ivan was the other way around. Everything is also, unless it, unless it contributes to Bodhis Hashem, a lot of things, much more than in the past people thought, contribute to Bodhis Hashem. But then you embrace them. Once you get a header to play basketball, you embrace playing basketball. I keep going back to the basketball because of the elbow. Now I'll tell you about the elbow. And he probably didn't mean to throw the elbows. He's a very ethical person. He had a hook shot, which I called. I once explained this to him. No, I didn't dare explain it to him. I explained it to somebody else in the family. It was a double. It was a double hook shot because there were two hooks. One went this way, one went this way. So I used to take him. He... This is a famous story. So maybe you heard it before, but I was there. We played three on three. Somebody on his team, he stopped the game. And he said to him, can't play with you? You're a very unethical player. <laughs> Why was he unethical? He didn't play defense. He only played offense. He chucked. He was a good offensive player. Uh, he was a Shiva High School, and Bobby Ryan was a Bulgare. And in the east side, that's how they played basketball. <laughs> he played basketball with a passion. He really did. And Tova once told, he said, when we were little kids, and we had a normal life, not a normal life. The books had always said the thing he was most proud of was, was raising a family. This yeshiva, yeshiva, the thing he was most proud of was that he raised a family. And he raised a family, not by teaching the Torah, doing all kinds of things. He used to play chess with the kids. He used to beat them. So Tova said, she said to him, she had an argument with him, she said, oh, you know, because you have to lose. You have to encourage the, uh, the thing. And he said, how would that, that would be a terrible example. You know, you have, if I'm playing chess, I'm going to beat them. <laughs> Hopefully they'll learn to beat me, and if they'll get the best fight, so we'll talk about it. But you don't play chess half-heartedly. And numerous tell me them, who have all kinds of... Uh, other things. They went to university, became uh, whatever, doctors, lawyers, etc. We'll say, and they did say, remember they said this during the, the period of the Shavoshim, they said that they went to university and all the time was like this this cloud behind their things. They wanted, they were yeshiva bochum, so they wanted to goof off a little bit. It's much space. Once you learn yeshiva for six, six, seven years, you can do university without even thinking. But there was this ravama behind them saying, if already you're leaving the yeshiva to go to be a doctor, you're going to be the best doctor in the world. You have to like devote yourself to it as much as possible. Of course, you have to also learn four or five hours a day, but you have to, if nothing, you know, you can't not take it seriously. Yeah. This, I'm not a good talker about the Now I have, uh, have Tavidah move in the university. So, I don't say this explicitly because I hear his voice, but I really hope that they'll say, okay, you know, we don't, uh, we have to also learn yeshiva, so they'll find the ways to cut corners the way I found the ways to cut corners. But I can't say it out loud because <laughs> I, I, he's right over here. He's like saying to me, what are you going to tell them? Not to do all the work. They have, to, they have homework. They have, they have to look up things. You have time to read the, uh, the cliff notes just to read the, 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 the short version. You can't do that. That was like, it was a model 
which has applications and influence beyond any particular area. It's not just that you should, you know, you should learn seriously. It's not that you should do A seriously. It's that we're in this world to be Obed Hashem, to be, to be Metakein Olam B'malchus Shakai. And everything you do there, as much as possible, when you get so tired you can't move, so you're out of sleep. But, but, uh, but, but again, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean the extreme as you think. In other words, I know Yeshiva Bochum sometimes asks a question, can, uh, what's the header to eat? I could be learning there. Because in, in traditional yeshivas, you know, the only header to eat is because otherwise you'll starve to death. Avon used to come to eat. And we used to schmooze during the meal. We used to eat slowly. He didn't eat quickly. I, they told a story once, which I, I guess it's true. Although it surprised me that he never ate soup. He never took soup in yeshiva because the soup was hard to eat it slowly. That surprised me because he never took soup because it was a waste of time. But, but when we ate, he, he wasn't rushing to go, okay, uh, 2,000 calories a day, come out, I'm going to go there. He had a spur. It wasn't a complicated spur. Why? You eat and you enjoy. He gets a chance to talk to the other guys at the table who uh, we sat together at the brother at the table and we could schmooze a little bit, a little bit. Rabbi Ryan, you should smooth them. I used to listen. And when I first went to Varen, 15, in YU, there's a cafeteria. You go with your tray, you pull the tray, and you go sit down. So he used to go sit down, and I felt bad, because nobody sat with him. Because it was hard to sit with him. It was scary. So I, uh, I guess I was, either I was foolhardy, being 15, or I was brave. I don't remember which. But I used to go to sit with him. But then, you go to sit with him, you have to, like, prepare. You can't just sit with him. What were you talking about? Basketball? So I prepared questions. I remember the question I asked one time. I thought it was a really great question. And this is an example. She said that it wasn't so much a you know, particular great piece of love. So maybe I gave a good answer. I said to him then, 1965, I said, I understand that, you know, the Kashmir has all kinds of plans for the world. But, you know, at the time, there were two billion Chinese. So, you know, so I understand David HaMelech asked, what do you have spiders for? So God showed him a spider was to save him. Why did God make two billion Chinese? How did that two Chinese? That was my shine. I thought it was a good question. I wanted to be serious. You know what his answer was? He said, I thought about it, I don't know either. <laughs> he was also honest. He didn't make up answers just because, just because, just because. You're um, okay, that's really... That's really my point. My point is, why are you really, why could you be, why should you be Tavit Nesatzatavah? Because without being able to write a book about it, you know, like, the Lichtensteinian way in Judaism, it doesn't exist. But the Lichtenstein was Koveya, I think, for all of us. People might be very different. When you ask, you know, what do you think about this? And there were more for people, less for people, and more right wing, and more left wing, and then whatever, more Haredi, and more modern. But it's not the particular Tevuzim to a given Kasha. But the, the unifying theme of taking everything seriously, not negating things just because we didn't do them in the past, looking for new ways and new things to do and doing them because they're right. And if you do them because they're right, then doing it with, with, with unlimited, unlimited devotion, unlimited power. And even if... I told myself, how much of that did I absorb in reality? Do I goof off more than? There are things I would be embarrassed. Savan once said to me, he said to me, like, so, you know, what are you doing in the evening, Seder? So I rolled my eyes. I said, how do I get out of this exactly? I said, well, you know, I look at this, look at that. I mean, he just assumed I had to be serious during the day, which I don't. Didn't and don't. 
So I goof off more than that, but when I goof off, at least I feel guilty. Because I know, uh, I goof off less, I think. Because you can have, you can play, you can play basketball. I, I used to have a bat, one basketball seder a week and one ping pong seder a week. Basketball with my friends and ping pong with Rav Tavori. That was perfectly okay. We played ping pong in a Lichtenstein man and we played basketball sitting man. The fact that I'm also a, uh, an, an expert in one or two very old, probably haven't even heard of it, uh, dust-based uh, computer games, that I don't tell about. That, 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 that I would tell about. I wouldn't see what's called my house on a Mosul Shabbos. And uh, one of the kids answered, he wanted to talk to me. And so he said, is Ezra there? So my daughter, Tmimuta, said that, no, he's playing basketball. And how old was I then? I don't know, maybe I was pushing 40. And uh, he was pushing uh, 60, yeah, a little more. And he said, wow, he's still playing basketball. That's so good for I mean, he must, he's, she could have seven jokes. So because of that, I managed to play beyond my 60s, so I could say that I played longer than he did. So <laughs> 66. And that was the, that was the mess of, like, it wasn't just something I learned. I learned millions of things from now. But in terms of, it's a kind of Yiddishkeit, which doesn't consist of A plus B plus C plus C, although there are those things as well. The articles you can read, one. I haven't thought about a million things. But it was to, to take the world and to take your own personal world and take the world around you and, and all the time be consistent, remold it to be, to be a basic image, to be a Malchut Shakai, Malchut Shakai, to be over the Shem and to make the world into a world of a world of Hashem. That's something which we which we have to, uh, which I hope we continue, we continue to do, and those Derech Yerbebeim who, who got it in a personal manner, hopefully, I think we, st- I hope, we still make it in Yeshiva, we give that message, message over, I'm not sure if it's as clear as it used to be, because it, it helps to have one demut that's like shown it, but, but yeah, I hope, hopefully it's in the walls, it's in the, it's in the shtendas, it's in, it's in Mechol Dochad Da'eu, and hopefully I think that it should be carried on, you should be getting it as well. I'll, I'll add two quick points. Because you always have to correct a little... Uh... No, because I'm vainglorious. <laughs> um, the first is, obviously, Ravarn was gifted in ways that... You can just look at me. We have to see your nice face. One is, obviously, Ravarn was gifted in ways that none of us are. But he was the single biggest mass man I ever met in my life. It was as if, you know, if he didn't learn 12 hours a day, he wouldn't know anything. Like, you, you just, you could not believe his asmada. At the same time, if you watched him learn, you saw what joy was. He learned with the passion. You heard him in the base medrash. He learned out loud. And he sounded happy when he learned that sometimes he just listened to the sound of the most authentic Talmud Torah you would ever hear in your life. Just a person who's at, at love with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and with Talmud Torah. He also never took a break. That's a big description. He just never took a break. He was always doing something. I, I spent the Shabbos at his house, and obviously I went to sleep well before him on Friday night, and the next day he was up learning before I got up. And that was a time where Viren's father, at the end of his life, was blind and almost completely deaf. When people were in Yeshiva, Ravon used to take him by the hand and tell him how many steps. Okay, so he was there for Shabbos, at home, and we went to a small minion, and Ravarn took his father and put him next to the Balkore. It was Shabbos Parshas Buchu Kosak. Okay, then in the afternoon we come home, there's lunch, 
I t- I'm trying to take a nap. Ravana learns with each of his children, you know, sons and daughters, one after the other. It was a long day. And at some point in the afternoon, his father says to him, I remember, Aaron, they spoke in Hebrew, Lo shamati kriyata Torah. He says, Ava shamata, you know, Lo, lo shamati, shamata, shamata. His father insists that he hadn't heard laning. So Ravana takes out a chumash and basically yells, Pashas Bechukosai, in his father's ear. You know, his father wanted to hear laning again, so Ravana laned for him again. And then he went back to learning. No naps, no nothing, and, and he seemed thrilled by it. I just, I remember having seen him at home thinking, he never takes a break. Now, whether he never takes a break because he loves learning so much, or, you know, he's so, it doesn't matter. Just the person who was the smartest person I ever met was also the biggest masman I ever met. And the smart thing may be beyond us, the Hasmata thing is not. And just one last story, because it's a good story, and then I'll stop. But it also shows an, an aspect of Ravarin's commitment to something. When Ryan used to come in, when we were in YU, so we'd follow him around for the week. So on a Thursday night, we went to hear him speak in KJ. Ben Sion Scheinfeld, he's a friend of mine, he drove it, he drove us back, he spoke in KJ. We went back, there's a dorm in YU, if anybody knows, everybody calls it the morgue. It's Morganston dorm, but they call it the morgue. Ravarin stayed in the Rav's apartment, which was on the ground floor of Morgue, and it was late. We all went up to our rooms. At, I don't know, one in the morning, there was a bomb scare. They told everybody, you know, you have to leave the building, they have to check the building. Someone had called in a fake bomb thing. Okay, so it was funny. It's one in the morning, you know, people come downstairs in their pajamas and sweatpants and sweatshirts. It was, it was the winter, it was like November time, I think. And you had to stand across the street for morgue while the police, you know, were standing out there for like 45 minutes. It's cold, it's starting to drizzle. Ravarin came out still wearing his tie. Right, it's clear, he was, he was learning. Okay, he came out still wearing his tie. We're waiting across the street. At some point, somebody says, you know, we should probably go inside. The only place to go is the base medrash. In those days, there was only one base medrash in one year in the high school building. So we go in. Okay, most, you know, pajamas, sweatpants, whatever. I promise you, most of the people who went in, it was their first trip to the base marriage. <laughs> you know, maybe in their entire stay in Wyoming. So that's 150 guys hanging out in the base marriage. And Rav Lutzstein sitting up front learning. And somebody comes to me and he says, you know, be fun. Ask Rav Lutzstein to give us a shear. You know, we have nothing else to do. Why not? So I go up front and I, I say, well, you know, Let's say give a shear. So he said, okay. So he takes some sparm, ramos, whatever. And he starts giving a shear, you know, halachas of pikuach nefesh. Okay, so it's, it's not just that, you know, he was ready and he gave, okay, he's giving a shear. I don't know how, I can't remember how long it went. But for the most part, people are listening because it's cool. It's two in the morning. We're in, you know, pajamas in the YU base matters. And Revival seems giving a shear. So, we like, you know, you're sitting around going, this is pretty cool. We're going to tell this story for a long time. Okay, I don't know, it's 2.30 now, and somebody comes to the door, knocks on the door, opens the door, and says, all clear, you can go back. And people get up. And Ravarin says, just a moment. <laughs> He's not finished. Right, like the idea that he would stop in the middle of a thought, like it never dawned on him. So he, fin- you know, another five, it doesn't matter, he went another five minutes. He finished his thought, he summarized it, so it was a sheer. But, you know, it didn't matter the circumstances. His commitment to Talmud Torah was such that, I don't care that it's 2.15 or 2.30. You know, we're in the middle of an idea. 
And we have to finish the idea, not to impress anybody, but that's my commitment to Talmud Torah. And people who were in his orbit, you know, just saw that commitment to Talmud Torah, and it stayed with us, and hopefully it stays with you forever. Okay, yeah, to everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much.